Hi, everybody. I'm Carla, recovering sex and love addict and a precious child of God. I'm very humbled to be here this morning because I have known Tracy for many years, five years at least, and I feel that the journey together, uh, sponsor, sponsee, has transcended that relationship and that we are sisters in recovery and that um, we will continue the journey. And I am humbled and admire her in her recovery. You'll you'll hear it. I won't go through that, but uh, she has a very strong message. She's very grounded spiritually, and I consider her my my sister. And with no further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce Tracy from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks, Carla. My name's Tracy. I'm a sex addict. I'm a frightened sex addict, but then I look, and and this is my people, so why should I be a frightened sex addict? Because there is no people that is my people like you people. Um, I don't know what I'm going to say, and that's always scary when I first start to talk, but I know that my job up here is to allow God to speak. It's not me. If I make this thing about me, I'm standing here going, if this is me. You know, I've got to allow my highest power to speak because I would not be standing here. I would probably not be alive were it not for the grace of a loving God that I have connected with after years in this fellowship, working in this program. Um, I, I came in, I'm going to start with when I came in. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what it was like because we know what it was like. You know, we all know, and it wasn't pretty. And it wasn't fun, really. We thought it was. I thought it was. I don't know about y'all. But it wasn't. It was this need to get fixed, this need to get high, this need to change who I was and how I felt to be different. And I don't need to be different today. And that's amazing Um, because all my life I wanted to be somebody else. And today I'm just Tracy. And I'm Tracy with uh, CPAP mask lines and, and, and camp look and wrinkled shirts because I'm at a retreat. And, and I thought about that. I thought, should I bring some other clothes? I thought, no. I'm at a retreat, and I'm Tracy, and I'm a sex addict, and that's all I need to be. Um, I came into this fellowship with 20 years of continuous sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that meant that I thought I knew something. And it's very dangerous to be a newcomer and think you know something. And and the first thing I tell people that are coming from another program is just be a newcomer. That was the biggest gift I gave myself was to be a newcomer. Um, I came in thinking I knew something, and I knew something for about 16 months. And then I knew nothing, and I relapsed, and I was out for about three or four or five months. And I came back in, and I gave myself the gift of being a newcomer. And it transformed my life. Um, just a little bit of my story so you know I belong here. I can't imagine why else I would be here. Um, <laughs> hanging out, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't remember much of my life prior to age 12. I just don't know who I was. I have no sense of being a child. I remember snapshots. And one of the snapshots I remember is between three and five years old compulsively masturbating. Didn't know I was doing that. But I needed to change the way I felt. I needed to do that to get to sleep when I was this tall. And um, that started my sex addiction. You know, now that I know that, 
I've been a sex addict my whole life. And that's okay today. Um, I started when I was 12, I started drinking and smoking a little marijuana and smoking cigarettes and really sexually acting out. You know, prior to age 12, I was playing doctor with my girlfriends from school, and then I blamed them. You know, I had one friend, I, I don't think I'll ever get to make an amends, that we um, acted out. I mean, I was like 10 or 11 years old, and we acted out. And uh, somehow or other, I didn't, nobody liked her. She was like the outcast. So I told everyone she was gay when I was acting out with her, and that's what my addiction looks like. It's toxic, it's dangerous, and it's everybody else's fault. And I don't have to live that way today. I can own my behavior today. So at 12, I was acting out heavily with men. At 14, I lost my virginity. Um, and I'm not even sure who that was to. It was one of two men. Um, and I wasn't drunk. I just was really never present in my body. I was never present in my life until I came into this program. Um, so at 14, I'm acting out with multiple partners. Um, I was in school, obviously, well, not obviously, some people quit before that. But I was in school, and I was going to school, and, and we had, at those days, we had free tropers and socials. And I was a freak and proud of it. We were the ones that were partying and getting high and, and being crazy. And I was in trouble all the time. And I was one of those students, they said, Tracy has a lot of potential. But, you know, I was the butt child. And that also was the story of my life. I had a lot of potential, but I had issues. You know, I remember being on the playground and wishing my parents would divorce because divorce was a big topic in the 70s. You know, the children of divorce have issues. And we must stay together so our children don't have issues. And I had issues, and I didn't know who to blame. So I wish my parents would get divorced so I'd have an excuse for having issues. Because I like things to be somebody else's fault from day one. Um, so I went on acting out, went to get, graduated high school, went to college, da-da-da-da-da, same stuff. 80s roll around. I'm active alcoholism. I'm in the gay bars night after night, every night, because I needed to be with my people. Because I was gay and I needed to be with my people. And I was drunk every night. And I was picking up men and women in the 80s, in the gay bars. It was not a safe and sane thing to do because this is when AIDS was just becoming known. And we knew it was sexually transmitted and there was no test, there was no treatment, there was nothing. I didn't care. You know, I never cared about me until I came to this program and worked these steps in this fellowship. So in 80, um, there was a whole lot of stuff. There was pornography. That, I'm just, I just acted out. I'm a sex addict. Um, in 1983, I was in love with this woman who was as insane as I was. And um, she wanted me to quit drinking. And I said, okay. And she went to sleep, and I went to the bar. And I got drunk. And I came back, and somewhere in the drunkenness, I threw a chair at a mirror and cut her arm. And, uh, and she left. And I followed her down the street, and I threw a beer. It was just ugly. It was alcoholism and sex addiction all rolled into one. And that led me to treatment for alcoholism. And that led me to the introduction to the 12 steps. And it's very confusing to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and be acting out sexually. And it was very confusing to be sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and still hate myself. 
you know, I'm in there, and these people are talking about happy, joyous, and free, and I'm thinking, wow, what's that? And they were the thing I remember the most, and I'm still a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a member of Sex Addicts Anonymous, and this is my primary program because this is my primary deal. Um, they would talk about they'd been a horse all their lives. They'd been a zebra all their lives. And they were running around with this bunch of horses. And they didn't know it. They just didn't feel the same. And then they came in Alcoholics Anonymous and they found zebras. And they were home. They were with their tribe. They were a bunch of zebras all together. And I didn't know what I was, but I wasn't a zebra. And it was hard being in Alcoholics Anonymous with the zebras and being some unknown animal. I had my first psychiatric hospitalization. I should have had it much earlier, but at the same time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had my first psychiatric hospitalization. Um, I was a cutter. I started cutting on myself to change the way I feel when I was 16 years old. And I did that frequently and consistently. Um, and I didn't even know. I was so out there. I didn't even know that that was not okay. Didn't know that that's not what we do. <laughs> and... Uh, so I landed, I should have landed in the hospital at 16. So I landed in the hospital at, at 23 and was diagnosed bipolar and was in for like 13 months. You know, the first 13 months in A, I was in the locked psychiatric unit. And that too became a pattern. When I came in today, I've had 34 psychiatric hospitalizations. I've been sober since March 13th, 2008. That's four years and seven months today. It's been over four years and seven months since I've been in a locked psychiatric unit because this program changed who I was to who I am today. I don't have to live like that anymore. I hated myself. I hated you. I hated everything and everyone because I was miserable. And, and I looked for something to blame. You know, it was my alcoholism. Well, that didn't fix it. And then it was my bipolar, and that didn't fix it. And then it was this, and none of it fixed it. I went to a trauma, I started trauma treatment, and I was still acting out sexually, and by now it was pornography. It was really hard to be really acting out with multiple partners for me and pretending to live a spiritual program, so I went to pornography. In 2000, I got my first computer. I was gone. I was absolutely gone. Um, I, so I was acting out alone with BDSM pornography, hating every moment of myself and getting high on how much I hated myself. I know none of y'all relate to that. You know, it talks about it in the Green Book. You know, even our shame became part of our addiction. And that's a paraphrase, because I can't quote it at the moment. And that's okay. Um, so I'm doing all this stuff. And in 19, I mean, I don't know, sometime in the 2000s, a friend of mine was doing trauma treatment for dissociative identity disorder. And I thought, well, that's cool. I'll go do that. And that will solve my problem. So, all my, you know, for, for however many years, because I was cutting, and nobody knew about my sex addiction, they said that I had to have had a trauma history. And this is real important to my story because my story is always about blaming people and about not being who I was and looking for stuff to be somebody's fault. So when they told me I had to have had trauma, but I wouldn't cut and I wouldn't have negative, I didn't have low self-esteem, I had negative self-esteem, they told me. And, you know, I was proud of that. I was proud of that um, because I was special, because I was real sick. So they told me I had to have trauma issues. 
So I started seeing therapists. I did some hypnotism, some regressive therapy, and, you know, we're going to find out why Tracy's all messed up. We never did. We never did. So I went to trauma treatment, and, and I was dissociative, which means I spaced out a lot. It means I'm not always present, you know. I know y'all can't relate to not being present either. I'm just a little bit of a sex addict, you see. So I wasn't present very often, so I was dissociative. And then there was a couple times I did stuff that I didn't know I did, and I hurt people, and I don't know what I did to hurt them, and they stopped talking to me. So I had dissociative identity disorder because I didn't remember life prior to age 12 and because I occasionally did stuff I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought that was pretty cool because that meant it wasn't my fault. You know, it meant, and, and what wasn't my fault and what I wasn't telling any of these people was my sex addiction. It wasn't my fault that I was looking at this porn and that I was doing phone sex and I was acting out with people, good friends, and having sex with people that I didn't want to have sex with and hurting people that cared about me by having sex with them when I didn't care about them, you know? So um, I did trauma treatment. And I did that for a bunch of years. And, and one of the biggest amends I had to make, and say, I don't know. I, do I have trauma history? Probably. I don't know. I don't care today. You know, I don't care today. It doesn't matter how I became a sex addict. It matters that I'm a sex addict, and it matters that I'm sober. And that's it. That's it. I am sober today, and I don't give a mm, how I got here. I mean, I care I got sober. I don't care I got to the program, how I got to be a sex addict. And at that point, you know, I'm not remembering life prior to age 12. So um, I decided my parents must have sexually abused me. And I told them that. And that was a big amends. Because I don't know. I have no idea. But I wanted to understand. Not only did I want to blame, I wanted to understand. I didn't know why I was doing this stuff. I didn't know why I was cutting myself. Why I was looking at BDSM porn and doing, you know, that stuff that I was doing. I didn't know why I was doing that. And I wanted to know why. And I did all this treatment. And I was in the hospital every three months by this point. Every three to six months I was in the hospital. That's how you accumulate 34 hospitals, hospitalizations in 20 years. You go a lot. So we fast forward. That's what it was like. That's who I was in my addiction. Uh, I hated me. I hated you. I hated everything. And I wanted to die. I left that out. I wanted to die. Wanted to die on a daily basis. And that's how you end up in the hospital. They don't put you in the hospital unless you want to die. So I wanted to die a lot. And um, worked the steps in AA. This is the first time, by the way, I've told my, my story face-to-face -face in SAA. And it's a little weird, but it's, it's all right, because this is my tribe. And I don't know if we're zebras or what. Maybe we're ostriches. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe we're all our own animal, probably. Y'all are my tribe. Y'all are where I belong. And the people in A are like, well, I'm a purist. I don't know why you're not just doing AA. I'm like, because y'all are not, y'all are my people. But these are my real people. So I went to SLAA at about two years sober. Oh, didn't mean to say a program. Sorry, erase. I went to another fellowship in uh, two years sober in AA. And they were talking about relationships and love and finding the right person. And I'm like, Man, I'm doing hardcore pornography. And I didn't belong. And I, and I didn't look at my sex addiction again for 18 years. 
Um, when I was in trauma treatment, I finally got honest about some of my sexually addictive behaviors. And we all agreed I was a sex addict. And we all agreed that I needed to deal with that. But we didn't agree that I needed to deal with it with 12 steps. I needed to deal with it with more therapy. So I did that. And then on um, August 10th, 2006, I was acting out, computer and phone sex. And, and I was at the point where I was fixing to go live BDSM, and I had never done that. I had never gone live, and I was fixing to. And at that point, I was ready to die. When I got off that phone with that man that I didn't know, I didn't know his name, didn't care. When I got off that phone, I wanted to the world. And I knew it was about sex addiction. So I, and it was late, it was the middle of the night. And it was a Thursday night, and I got on the computer, and I started Googling sex addiction. And I found every 12-step program there was on sex addiction. And I emailed and called each and every one of them. Sex Addicts Anonymous called me back the next day. Nobody else did. That's why I'm a member of Sex Addicts Anonymous, and I'm so grateful for that. They called me back, and they said, there's a meeting in your area on Sunday, and I'll never forget, I said, no, I'm dying today. What do you got today? I'm dying. And they said, well, these, there's these phone meetings. You can go to one of them. So I landed in the telemeetings. And I'm grateful for that today, too. I landed in the women's telemeetings. I didn't look for the women's telemeetings. I didn't care where I went. I just wanted help. And that's where God said I needed to be, apparently, because that's where I was. So I'm 20 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm wanting to die, and I'm entering Sex Addicts Anonymous. And it was very, um, I liked it, telemeetings, because it was very, um, what I considered then solid sobriety. I consider it now kind of hardcore sobriety. Um, but it was very absolute, very absolute. You list all of your inner circle behaviors. You do not do them. You are not sober if you do this, this, and this. And I needed that. I have a list of 20-something items that's in my inner circle, and I need that. And I didn't know if I was going to read it or not. It's in my pocket because I, I have it memorized, but I can't go through it real quick. I don't need to share that because you all know who I am. Oh. So I did inner circles, and I did, I did a pretty long list. I like about 17 or 18. I, I wanted the prize. See, I either want somebody to blame or I want the prize. And so I went through the steps real fast. I, was, I completed the steps in nine months, which was the fastest on the telemeetings. I was the first one of my peers through the steps. And then I had seven sponsees, and then I relapsed. Because that's what happens when I look for the prize. Someplace outside of right here, right now. I act out, I go crazy, I want to die. The prize is right here, right now, where my feet are. Um, and I'm amazed by that today. I don't cry, and I feel these little teardrops building up because y'all don't know who I was, but y'all do know who I was. Yeah, now Carla said we've known each other five years, and it's been an amazing journey. And for years in AA, because I was sober in AA, and I was still cutting and stuff, still running crazy, I told people, you don't get, there, you don't get here from there. And now when I was the poster child, Tracy can stay sober, anybody can stay sober, because Tracy's miserable. And she's not drinking, so you too can be miserable and not drink. 
it's a great poster child to be. So, and I used to say, one of the things I used to say all the time is you don't get here from there. And I thought I knew what that meant. Today I know what that means. You don't get here. I started cheering up a little bit when Carla was introducing me because I remember the first time I came to, um, well, not Camp Sumataga. It was my first time at Camp Sumataga. First time I came to the farm. I was six months sober. And y'all didn't have any chips, and I got a resentment because I wanted a chip, and y'all had forgotten the chips. And it was my six-month birthday. But what I learned, I'd been to some other retreats, and what I learned here and what I learned at Camp Pioca in Indiana, there's four men that taught me that men were people. There's a bunch of people, and there were, what, four or five women that year, I think. And we all knew each other, <laughs> you know, and I see new women that I don't know, and that is awesomeness. Um, so I found out, because I'd been on the phone, I found out the fellowship of face-to-face, -face, and every year when I leave here, I go home, and I'm so sad because I'm not connected at home. I'm just not connected. Um, but I'm so grateful when I get to come here and be connected. Um, where I was going was poster child, and you don't get here from there. So uh, as long as I'm looking for the fix or the prize, because I thought, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says we get happy, joyous, and free. And I'm like, okay, I didn't get that in AA. I'm going to get that now. And I'm going to work the steps. I'm going to be happy, joyous, and free. And I was miserable. And what happened, sometime during my acting out, during my relapse, uh, my grand sponsor in my other program had me writing letters to God and then having God write me back. And what you do is you write a letter to God. What I did is you write a, I wrote a letter to God. I read something spiritual, wrote a letter to God, sat still, read something spiritual, and God write me back. And, and we all knew it was my hand, but I allowed, God, I allowed myself to listen to God. And one Sunday night, I was coming back from someplace, and I was sitting in the parking lot of my apartment, and I was talking to one of my friends from this program, a very good sister. And she said, you know, you sound really angry at God. And I thought about it. I said, you know, you're right. And I went in my apartment that night, and I did my letter to God, and I told God how mad I was. I told God, I'm doing everything right. You know, I got, I got the church thing. I got baptized. I've never done that before. You know, I did that in like 2004. You know, I follow the rules now. I'm not acting out. I worked the steps. Where's the happiness, joyousness, and freedom, God? And you know what God wrote me back? I'm still blown away by this. God wrote back, who are you to define your happiness? That was the transformation point in my life. Because, see, my happiness is not my business either. My business is to, I can't believe I'm quoting the big book more than the green book, um, but we all use both, or a lot of us do. My job is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and my fellows. And God takes care of the rest. When I let go and I let God define my, higher, my happiness, my higher power, whom I choose to call God, when I let my higher power... God, decide to find my happiness, I find it. I find freedom in letting go. I find happiness in surrender.
Who knew? And that was the turning point in my sobriety in my life. When I stopped trying to figure it out, stopped trying to get the prize, and just said, okay, my life truly is none of my business. I've been saying for years my life is none of my business. And I meant it, except I knew what happy, joyous, and free looked like, and I wanted it, I didn't have it. At that moment, I let go of that idea, too. I didn't know what happy, joyous, and free was, but I was just going to do the best I could today and see what happened. Um, so I, uh, somewhere in there, I changed sponsors. My sponsor was, at the time, terminally ill, but she ended up surviving, and that's a good thing. Uh, but I had to change sponsors because she was totally unavailable. And, and man, God was working in that. I, I had in mind somebody I wanted to be a sponsor. You know, I want somebody that's been around a long time and is a guru and, you know, can really help me. And, and, and I got Carla, and Carla has really helped me, and Carla is my guru. You know, she always said, balance and harmony, when I was running crazy, balance and harmony, and, and I learned that. And uh, Carla modeled these things for me. Um, but when I changed sponsors, I was on step two. I did step one with my original sponsor this time, and we had, she had what she called the relapser set of questions. That sponsor line, they do a series of questions. And, and you answer the questions, you move to the next step. And I was really good at answering questions, so, you know, I, that's why I got through in nine months. It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of regurgitation, and it's not a lot of experience. At least that was my experience with it. That's, you know, that's all I know is that was my experience with it. I can, I can parrot information real well. Yeah, so um, I did step one with that sponsor, and she had a set of questions that we referred to as the relapsers questions. Because if you relapsed, you got this big old packet. And, and actually, I found out where they come from. They come from yet another 12-step fellowship. And there's a bunch of them. And in step one... One of the questions was, what all are you powerless over? And, and I listed a whole bunch of things, and then I wrote something that I didn't know I was going to write. I wrote God. I was powerless over God, and I'd been trying to manipulate God all my life. You know, if I do this, this, and this, if I work the steps and I do this, I get happy, joyous, and free, right, God? And I was trying to control God, not by being a good girl, because I was not a good girl and never had any desire to. Even in sobriety, I'm still a bit of a rebel. So I was trying to manipulate God with the 12 steps and with being active in church. So I realized that I was powerless over God, too, and that was another big turning point because I didn't even know that I thought I had power over God, but I thought I did. So in step two, my revelation was a little bit different. Um, first of all, I stopped trying to manipulate God and let my higher power be my higher power and realized I could not manipulate control my higher power. And it wouldn't be much of a higher power if I could control it. That would be me being the higher power again. And I tried that. So in step two, it was real interesting. And this is the second time through. The first time we don't, you know, that was whatever. That was Tracy trying to fix things. Um, you know, here I am in and out of mental hospitals. When I, uh, I went to school in sobriety, and when I started looking at what I wanted disability because I'm mentally ill. So I was on disability for my bipolar. And it's really odd. Um, it's no wonder I ended up on disability because my prior career was uh, social work. And I worked for Child Protective Services. And I did sexual abuse investigations. Now, that's a trip. 
active sex addict investigating sexual abuse. And I didn't understand why are we, you know, the guys that were in trouble, I always identified with them and I liked them and I was mad at the women that did not take, you know, that didn't take any action. Well, yeah, I'm one of y'all, you know, I'm a sex addict. So, yeah, I identified with, with the ones that were sex addicts. So um, I'm getting a second career because that landed me on disability. You know, talk about cognitive dissonance, as we, use, as we called it. You know, that means you're thinking one, it's not matching. wasn't matching. And I ended up on disability for my bipolar. You know, 17 hospitalizations. And, oh, I had two series of shock treatments, too. That was special. I, I can't, I, you don't get here from there. I cannot believe my brain is not fried because I've seen people go through shock treatment that are never the same. They have this blankness in their eyes. And by the grace of God, that didn't happen. And, and normally, when you do ECT, they run it through, well, they, you didn't used to, but today, I'm, I know these things, they run it through one side of your brain because you have less memory loss. So we did a series on one side of my brain, and that didn't work. So we went, and did, we went ahead and did what they call bilateral ECT, and we did both sides of my brain. And I still didn't get better, and I finally stopped it. Um, and they said that I had to have ECT to get me well enough to deal with my trauma. Um, so I did that, I don't know, sometime about the same time I started trauma treatment. Um, that's how I lived. So um, I'm starting a new career. I do rabbit trails, but I always find my way back. Uh, I started a new career. And I was trying to figure out what the career was going to be. I'm working with disability services. And I'm talking to my sponsor in, in my other program. And, I'm, and I want to do something with computers. I'm like, I want to do technology. And what she said was, that'll be good for you, Tracy, because you are a geek with no social skills. <laughs> you know? And, and I was. I was a geek with no social skills. And this is part of my background for step two. Because my step two... I don't know, I hear people say that look for a miracle in step three, and, and I look for a miracle wherever you got it. I got a miracle in every step. Uh, so in step two, and I'm still with the old sponsor, I uh, went to a women's retreat in my other fellowship. And I'm praying about step two, and I'd always gotten stuck on step two. You know, in the other fellowship, and this one the first time, and this one the second time, I'm stuck. Because I don't know what restored sanity means. You know, I don't know. So I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to get my head around this restoration to sanity. And, and I'm asking everybody, and I was 22 years sober in that program by this point. And the retreat was on steps one, two, and three. And um, I'm walking around, 22 years sober, saying, how do you work step two? And they're saying the same thing they always said. You come to believe. I feel better when I believe than when I don't believe. You work the rest of the steps. And I'm like, I've done all that. It's not working. And uh, what happened was, the, I'd been to that retreat the year before. I'd sat in my room and chain smoked, talked to people in SIA the whole time, didn't go to any of the functions. If I did, I went in and I went out. And I was sitting there, and I was in my room, and I was doing my 11th step because I continued my 10 and 11 after I relapsed. I'm doing my 11th step, and I realized that I was sane. My sponsor had told me to act as if I was sane. You know, I heard act as if. And I thought, well, you act as if there's a God. That's what it means. That's what I'd always done. That's what they taught me. Well, this sponsor suggested I act as if I was sane. 
So I acted as if I was saved. And I was. You know, I was not hiding in my room. I had quit smoking by this point. So I wasn't out someplace smoking. I went to every event, every group, every workshop. I sat with people I'd known for years, and I was comfortable and safe and interacted with these women that used to just terrify me because I wasn't a zebra. And I was able to sit with zebras. And I realized that my rest, I am in the process of restoration to sanity because I couldn't have done that. Couldn't have done that. So that was step two. Then I changed sponsors. And, and I had to think about changing sponsors because, you know, I was Green Book all the way. We use SA literature. This is SA. We don't use anything else. And uh, I'm looking for a sponsor. And I, I asked someone. She said, let me pray about it. And I'm like, okay. And then she said, no, and I'm praying about it. And I'm talking to Carla one day and just because like, she was in my support system. And out of nowhere, I'm like, will you sponsor me? I didn't know I was going to ask her because, you know, I don't know that she's going to use the Green Book all the time. She might use outside literature, and that would be wrong in my all-knowing two-month-sober brain. Um, but God told me to ask her. You know, it just came out. And Carla said, well, let me pray about it. And she said, yes. And I said, wow, okay, we'll just roll with this. And, and I told her I wanted to go through slow. I'd gone through really fast. I said, I really want to experience each step this time. And uh, we went to step three. We went ahead and we reviewed stuff. And, and another real important thing is back with the circles. Um, the whole time I had been sober, those um, 16 months, I'd been fantasizing still. I was staying very high in my middle circle, thinking I was sober. And for me, and for me alone, because I didn't know anybody else, because the beauty of this program is we know what is sober for us. Um, when I redid my circles, I realized that fantasy was inner circle. It was always part of my acting ad. It was a huge part of my acting ad. So I put intentional sexual fantasy or euphoric recall in my inner circle. And I stopped getting high. I wasn't high in my middle circle anymore. All of my behaviors that were high, all my behaviors that I got high were in my inner circle. So I wasn't getting a little buzz on the side. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm staying sober, but I need a little sex hit over here. I wasn't doing that anymore. And that was huge. You know, that was my experience. So we're on step three. And, and I'm looking for a miracle because you're supposed to get miracles in step three. And all I got was the sense of surrender. And uh, we were, and I, I love to walk labyrinths, and I was walking a labyrinth. And what came to me that time, I'd been studying some spiritual literature. And what I got out of step three is God is not a man, God cannot lie. You know, and I can't remember exactly, you'd think I'd have it memorized by now, I always have to look it up. Um, but the gist was, God is not a man, God will not lie or change his mind. And I thought, wow. This is a higher power that I can trust, that I can turn my will and my life over to. Because he, she, it's not going to lie or change he, she, it's mind. So that was step three. Um, I have to back up a little bit, too, because steps two and three were always my sticking points for 20, was 22, 20, I don't know, 22 years sober in the other program when I did step three in this one. And when I first came to the other program, First couple of times I went, they were talking about God, and I said, no, you find God. And I continued in that addiction. 
And then I got to step three in that program and see, I, um, I was gay. I was gay. And, and we knew, because Anita Bryant told us that God hated queers. God hated queers. Anita Bryant told us. It was a bumper sticker in the state of Texas. So I was in a little trouble with this higher thing. And I finally decided um, that, that, that God wanted me to be happy, joyous, and free. And I decided in 1986-87 that if God wanted me to be happy, joyous, and free, then um, if, I thought God was going to zap me into heterosexuality, you see, and I didn't want to be heterosexual uh, because my identity was my sexuality because I'm a sex addict. So I thought God was going to zap me into heterosexuality if I took step three. And finally I decided, and this must have been a God thing because I don't make good decisions on my own, that if God zapped me into heterosexuality, it would be because I would be happy, joyous, and free that way. And I took step three 20-something years ago. So this time when I got to step three, and God didn't zap me into anything, by the way. You know, nothing, I, I was not zapped. I've never been zapped by God into anything. And I wanted to be. I wanted neon signs and burning bushes and zappage. And I never got it. I got a slow, steady spiritual awakening. So um, I get to this place where God will not lie or change his mind. And, and I'm like, okay. And I'd always struggled so much. I don't know how I stayed sober in that 20-something years. Because I had little concept of God. I hated myself, you and everyone else. And I knew God hated me if God even existed. So I, just, I f- discovered that my higher power really was bigger than me because I'd already been experiencing a restoration to sanity and because God does not lie or change God's mind. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, So that was my step three moment. And what I found going through the steps slowly with my sponsor, and and this is my experience. Some people go quick, some people go slow. There's no one correct or essay-sanctioned way to work the 12 steps, and I believe that. I needed... A slow, steady journey, because I've been living it twenty-something years and wasn't getting it. You know, so um, step four, I just took. I just took steps four through seven. I, there's no big moments, except I did an honest, really honest inventory. I don't know. My sponsor may remember some big moments, but I just know I took them, and I knew that I took them thoroughly, very thoroughly. Uh, she made me dig, dig, dig. And we started with the foundation of the one I had done just a year before. And in step seven, you know, I, I wrote it all down, wrote the inventory down, shared it with my sponsor, did a fifth step. She asked me some more questions in step five. She had me look at some more stuff about dishonesty and all. And I shared that. And I spent some time with God. And we spent a lot of time in step six, too. And I thought, well, six is, you know, you go sit for an hour and you say the prayer. No. We spent some time in it. We discovered the destructive, destructiveness, destructivity. I like destructivity better. Uh, we discovered the amount of destruction that my insanity, my addiction created in my life and the lives of those around me. And what happened for me in step six my character defects got real big, and I developed new ones, too. 
You know, they got real big until I was willing to let them go. And we did a lot of letting go exercises in step six. And six and seven just have always blurred for me because I get willing and I do it. And so I got willing and I asked God for help. And I'm still in that process of surrendering my character defects to a loving higher power. So um, I started getting willing. I started letting go. Step eight was the hardest step for me, this trip through the steps. Because what we did, we wrote down my actions. We made the list of what I did. We made a list of who I did it to, what I did, what I owed amends for. And we, and, we, and we looked at the character defects that drove these behaviors. And that hurt. That helped me to see, I, I can see now, that doing that showed me that it really was about me. I didn't do these things because of you. I didn't do these things because of my parents or the next door neighbor or, or whatever. It was my character defects that drove these toxic behaviors. And that was hard pill to swallow. Um, we were in step eight, seems like a year, you know, and, and I could only do 10 a week because I, I had to experience. I had to experience and really become willing. And, and I wrote letters to everybody, and we kind of went over it. And, well, we did go over it. It wasn't kind of to it. We went over the letters and decided what amends to make. And, and uh, when I had been sober the 16 months before, I, when I was blaming my family for because I needed to blame someone, Twice I had cut my parents out of my life. I told my mom she was toxic and I couldn't recover around her. And uh, she's watching me cut and I'm burning myself with cigarettes and I weighed 105 pounds at one point, believe it or not. Uh, dying, looks like I was dying. One time I came home and I put a cigarette in my mouth backwards and had a big old cigarette burn and cuts all over my body. And this woman watched me like that and this woman loved me like that. And I told her she was toxic, and I couldn't, couldn't have her in my life, and I couldn't get better. And I did that twice. And, you know, on some level she is, but I don't know anybody that's not from a dysfunctional family. And, and I needed the space, perhaps, but it could have maybe been done different. So I had been starting a living amends. They had moved to Oklahoma, and I don't think I could have done this if they still lived in Dallas-Fort Worth. If they had lived close, I don't think I could have done these amends. Um, but they moved to Oklahoma, so they were far enough that I just saw them sometimes. And, and I would go up to Oklahoma and I'd see them, and I started a living amends during the first period of sobriety. And what that living amends was is I was present. When I went to see them, I was present. And I started practicing love and service. And love and tolerance is our code. And I started living that with my family. And instead of seeing what I could get out of them or what was their fault or how toxic they are, they got their toxicity. You know, they got their stuff. Um, but they loved me. And they did the best they could. And they didn't hurt me. They were not toxic to the point where they were damaging and dangerous to me. And I'm grateful for that because a lot of our parents were. And my parents I could have a relationship with. 
So I started practicing love, service, tolerance, and presence. That was the biggest gift I gave them, is when I went to visit them, I was there with them, and I had never been present in my life. Um, first time I knew I was present is I heard a, there was a woodpecker, and it would always sit out my window and it would chop on the wood, and this was in step two. And it flew off, and I heard his wings flap, and I had no idea you could hear that sound. And I'm still amazed that I could hear that sound, but I didn't know. And I've heard it since, you know, when they do a certain way, you can hear it. And, and that's what I found out being present was. I'm aware of what's around me. I'm part of it. So I started practicing presence was the biggest gift I could give my parents. And they heard night step amends. You know, we'd done that. Um, but I did a night step with my dad. I wrote a letter and I read it to him. And in that letter, see, I, I told my mom, we have these, I know this is going to be shocking, I'm a sex addict, and we have some very bizarre family dynamics in my family. And the way the dynamic is, mom knows everything, we tell mom everything. And mom says, don't tell your dad, he'll get upset. And then she tells dad, but she doesn't tell us, she tells dad. And he doesn't tell us, he knows. And, and we, it's, I don't understand, I, you know, I, I still don't understand the rules. I've been play, I just found out the rules when I was like in my 20s. Because we all thought mom was just a, you know, it was her fault. She was mean and negative. And really she was protecting my dad because he was scary dangerous. But she had to be mean to protect us from him. So we all had this don't tell dad. So when I was doing all this trauma treatment, and I, and I had all sorts of insane scenarios in my head about what had happened to me, because I didn't know. Insane, scary stuff happens to a lot of people I know, but it didn't. I don't know if it happened to me or not. I don't care. It doesn't matter today. So I had uh, told my mom I had accused her of sexually abusing me, because I had to be sexual abused because I was a sex addict. Um, I had accused her. I had told her to her face that I thought maybe she had. And I told her that I thought my dad had. And I had this the whole scenario. And she told my dad. She told my dad that I thought he had sexually abused me. And um, somehow or other, I found out that he knew. I think my brother told me. I don't know. Somehow or other, I found out that he knew. And um, my amends to him, I read the letter, and I said, I'm sorry I accused you of sexually abusing me. Um, and, and he teared up. And my dad... Uh, First time I was in the hospital, we did family therapy, and my dad and I had an agreement that we would only discuss the weather and football and buy cars occasionally. That was my relationship with my dad. And my dad teared up, and he thanked me. He said, that had really hurt, and thank you for acknowledging that. And that's the only moment I've ever had with my dad of any kind of connection. And, and I accept that. He's just not capable. So that was step nine. That was my big step nine moment. I continue to live ten. My 10th step practice changes over time. I, um, I, I do a green book, big book combo. It's about a page long of questions I look at at the end of Well, I'm doing it in the mornings now because I'm always sleepy at the end of the day. So I'm starting doing it in the morning so I can be a little bit more present to it. And I continue to discover things that I don't like about myself. And over and over and over it says I'm lacking in humility. I don't even know what humility is. You know, I, I learned in the 12 and 12 is my favorite definition, and I don't have it. I can't believe I don't have these things memorized, and if I did, I'd forget right now anyway because I'm standing in front of a bunch of people. Um, but it talks about knowing who we are and knowing who we can be under God. Something to, and it's a beautiful definition. 
and I've paraphrased it for years. And another definition I've heard of humility is simply being right-sized. And that one's real simple. It means I'm just me. I'm a people. I'm just a people. And God is God. And I'm right-sized in connection with God, and I'm right-sized in connection with y'all. You know, I was always, as someone said at the meeting last night, I was always up here. I was intellectually superior. I was down here. I had no social skills. And I always thought, you know, all my life that I remember, I remember being 12 years old. This is how I know that I started at 12. 12 years old, I'm walking down the street. I had a little mantra. And it was, F it, I don't need anything from anybody. And I made that decision at 12, and I lived that decision until I got sober in Sex Addicts Anonymous. So um, I don't live that way anymore. Back to humility. I knew I had a rabbit someplace. Um, I am a people. I'm not up here. I'm not down here. I have my own social skills. You know, I have my own social skills, and they work. I am a part of today. No better than, no worse than. I'm a sex addict, and that's part of who I am. I'm a geek, and that's part of who I am. What I am is I'm a people. I am one of God's people. And every one of y'all is, and every person that's not in this room, we are all people. And that was, like, huge for me, because I didn't think I was a people. And that's why I was up here or down here. I didn't think I was a people. When I first started uh, the round of psychiatric hospitalizations, I, I really and truly believed, and I told them that there was a piece of me missing, that God had created me with something that other people had, and I didn't have it. And I didn't know what it was, but other people connected, and I did not connect. I didn't connect. I wanted to, but I didn't. And that was reality. You know, that wasn't Tracy's head. Tracy did not connect. I was an island. Um, what they told me was that missing piece was emotion. And I'm going to go back to that in just a minute. So I did not connect. I was an island I had, because I hated me. And in this program, I found out that I don't have a piece missing. I had a piece hidden under a lot of addiction and a lot of distrust and a lot of paranoia and a lot of stuff. But I don't have a piece missing. God didn't make a mistake when he made me. You know, God, my higher power knows what my higher power is doing. You know, I don't have a piece missing anymore. I found the missing piece. And, and, and I'm just human. And I have to, the missing piece was accepting who I am, was just being who I am. Um, the Green Book was amazing for me. I worked the steps primarily out of the Green Book. It, changed, it was amazing because for the first time, I saw me. And one of the things that means the most to me from the Green Book is, um, I think it's off of page 69. It talks about the importance of being gentle with ourselves. And it talks in the chapter on healthier sexuality about how we develop intimacy, which I bought my Green Book. But I can paraphrase pretty well. It talks about, and y'all can look it up. I can look it up. Um, it talks about we first learn to be intimate with ourselves by accepting all of our emotions. And in step three or four, it talks about those emotions, even the painful and difficult ones. You know? And I started accepting my emotions. On these telemeetings I was going to, I'm still going to the telemeetings, 
Um, we started every meeting with the inner circle behaviors. We introduced ourselves, listed our inner circle behaviors. Some people have issues with that, some people don't. I don't care. I need to see them or say them once or twice a week so I know who I was. Um, and then we said how we were feeling. Just one, maybe two words. And when I came in, I'm like, I don't know, but I don't like it. That was all I knew about feelings. And by saying a feeling word, and I have little pictures. You know, I had a little face pictures, and I had this long list of these all things are anger, these things are fear, because I didn't know. And I'd go through the little list, and I'd pick a feeling. I'd pick the most appropriate feeling. And they tried to teach me about feelings and emotions for years. You know, I had a therapist tell me that what I needed was um, emotional something. I had an emotional disconnect. And they had told me that that's what was missing. And I don't know. I don't care. I know that it was huge for me to start being intimate with myself by simply accepting who I was, even the hard parts, even the emotions, because the emotions are what scared me. When I did my first fourth step, or my second or third fourth step in the other program, I had to add a column to the four columns. I had to add a column on emotions, because we tell our secrets. You know, we get rid of the stuff that we're not telling anybody. Well, my secrets were emotions. I was proud of my insane behaviors. I called it gaze of our lives. I was proud of my insanity. I wore it like a badge. So I had to get down to feelings because I didn't have those. And I didn't know what they were. So I had to add a column on feelings way back when. Didn't know what I, they were until I got sex sober because I've been acting out sexually since I was three or four years old. So I've never been sober to know what feelings are and to learn who I was until I came in here. Um, so as I became intimate with myself, I started becoming intimate with y'all. That blows me away. I had, I had a sponsee tell me last week that she didn't know how to work with me. She was scared of me because I was emotionally available. And that really took me aback because I've never been accused of being emotionally available before. <laughs> and, and you know what? I am. I am today. And that, you know, I don't make stuff like this happen. Because, see, I'm over here, and I'm thinking happy, joyous, and free is over there. But I found out when I got mad at God, and God told me, who are you to define your happiness? And I stopped trying to fix it and figure it out and earn it. And I found my happiness right here in accepting me, and accepting me allowed me to accept and love y'all. Uh, there's, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to share beyond that. Let me see. Um, that's been the, that's the thing. I love me today, which I can't believe I said that out loud up here. That's being recorded. But I'm okay with who I am today. And, and it freaked me out a little bit when this sponsee told me I was emotionally available. And I thought, and I'm like, wow, what a gift. Because I had this piece of me missing, and I had this disconnect, and I wasn't a people. And I wasn't a zebra, and I wasn't a horse. You know, and I'm emotionally available today. What an amazing gift. Um, when Carla was introducing me, and as I was, I skipped breakfast, surprise, and, and did a little prayer and meditation, spent some time with God. And um, I told God God was going to have to speak. And, and I, I asked, no, I asked my higher power to please allow me to be a vessel. 
And I asked, and I asked my higher power to please speak for me because if I did it, I was going to be so ugly. And I was scared. And I finally told my higher power, because this is what I learned how to do back when I figured out about defining my happiness. I said, okay, if I stand up there and go, duh, 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 I don't know, got no words, then I guess that's your will. You know, I guess that's your will and that's okay. Whatever happens up here, whatever happens out there, it's okay. Because I'm under the care of a loving higher power, which I found in this fellowship, working this program. Um, when Carla was introducing me, I, I cheered up a little bit because nobody wanted what I had. I didn't have anything worth giving away. And today, I'm given the gift of telling my story because somehow that I cannot fathom, and we were talking about this, you know, I figured out I have reasonably well accepted that I am lovable, that I am loved, and that I am emotionally available. I, I still struggle with that, but I, I've seen a lot of evidence. I've been that way for a year or two. And, and okay, I'm emotionally available. People want what I have. You know, my sponsees are just, we're so... I'm like, no, stop. Because I'm, that's not where I come from, and it's really hard to accept being loved. It's still really hard. And then what I had to talk to my sponsor about today, or yesterday, or I don't know, sometime this weekend, was I'm starting to be respected. I didn't know what that word meant. You know, somebody respected me enough to want to hear my story. How'd that happen? That doesn't happen to people like me who have a piece missing. It doesn't happen to people like me who hate myself so much I sexualize it and get high on pain, my own pain. It doesn't happen to people, it just doesn't happen to people like me that you're loved and respected. And I, I cannot fathom that, but I have to accept it. And I have to say thank you to people that offer me that gift. And I have to say thank you, God, for making me who I cannot be. And um, I think that's the place to stop. Thank you, God, for making me who I cannot be. Thank you all for allowing me to be here and share my story.